Well, if you can just turn back to that passage that Marco has read for us on page 958, 958, um, 1 Corinthians and chapter 11, uh, verses 2 to 16, as we continue in our series in this letter. Just one sermon such prize this morning, and that's for Elsa. Now, in 2011, uh, Paul Watts uh, preached a sermon on this passage. His sermon is available on the website. I encourage you to listen to it. It's much better than this one. And I was tempted just to end things there, and we could all sing a hymn and go home. And uh, that would be a lot easier for me. Um, But in Paul's introduction into that sermon, he refers to a book that appeared, was published in the 1990s. Um, His title was this, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And it was a book that grabbed people's attention. Um, People, um, it, it resonated with people and it sold millions of copies. And yet how society has changed And in only a few years, so no longer is society wanting to recognize the differences between men and women, society is wanting to remove those differences altogether. Uh, The roles of men and women and the differences between men and women and the equality of men and women, it's a big issue in our society and it's constantly being put under the microscope. And, And that will and that does impact the church. So so the church is constantly under pressure to conform to society, under pressure in all sorts of ways. The world is wanting to squeeze the church into its mould. And so that means we have to ensure that we keep close to the Bible and we follow um, what God says. Now this morning we're beginning a new section in this letter and as Paul he turns from the subject of idolatry to the subject of corporate worship. How the church should behave when it gathers together in worship and this theme will span from this chapter through to the end of chapter 14 and there are, there are three main areas of corporate worship that Paul looks to address. So, so one is uh, behaviour at the Lord's Supper. Uh, two is people's attitude towards and use of spiritual gifts. Uh, and three, in the passage that we're looking at this morning, the differences between men and women and how they relate to each other. Now, the scene that Paul describes in verse 5, uh, where women are praying and prophesying and they are vocally participating and contributing in the gathered worship of the church in Corinth, that would have been radical in the first century. Uh, We'll hopefully come to prophecy a bit later in our series. Uh, But in the first century, women were considered inferior to man. So the testimony of a man was considered twice as valuable as that of a woman. Um, Every day, Jewish men would praise God and thank God for three things. Uh, One, that they were not a Gentile. Two, that they were not a slave. And three, that they were not a woman. Uh, Rabbis wouldn't usually speak to a woman who wasn't his wife. And, And in the Jewish synagogue, all the women had to sit behind a screen and remained silent. They were not allowed to speak or participate in their services. And so for men and women to to worship together in the same room, in full sight of each other, 
Uh, with women vocally able to participate and contribute in the worship and expression of their uh, unity in Christ, uh, being equally valued in him, uh, visibly demonstrating what Paul teaches in Galatians 3, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. That was radical. That was radical, the coming of Jesus and the example of Jesus and the redemptive work of Jesus, it completely revolutionized how women were seen. It turned it upside down and the right way up. Indeed, if you look at verses 11 and 12, Paul, he will emphasize the importance of both men and women in the church, how neither is superior to the other, Both are equally valued, both are needed. And yet it seems that some women in the church in Corinth, as the church gathered together for worship, were were going too far in the expression of their newfound freedom in Christ. And, And they were expressing this by not wearing a head covering. Now, this passage is extremely difficult. It is extremely difficult, and it's hard to be certain on all the details. So, for example, no one knows for definite exactly what the head covering was. No one really knows. So, verse 15, some think that it's long hair. Long hair is certainly a covering given by God. Others think that it was the way in which the long hair was worn, So styled in a way that covered the head. Most, I think, understand it to be a physical covering. So some form of scarf or shawl or veil or hood uh, that covered the head. Um, In in that culture, in the first century, uh, married women, they, they would wear some form of physical head covering, not just in church, in public, everywhere they went in public, they would wear this head covering. It was part of their culture. It was what they did. It was part of their everyday life. And it was a symbol that said to everyone that they were married. Uh, they were spoken for. They had a husband and they were unavailable to other men. Uh, and people at the time, they understood what this physical symbol meant. And so to remove the head covering in church, even if it was an expression of the fact that men and women are one in Christ, that was causing some people some difficulties. So if you skim your eyes through the passage, you see that Paul repeatedly uses the language of of shame and and, and, and honour. So their actions were causing some of the services to be distracted and disturbed and upset and offended. Not because they didn't like the thought of women being equal with men, but but because husbands were seeing their wives removing their head coverings as if to suggest that their their status and role of, of a wife no longer applied and that they were now available to other men. And and so Paul teaches them on the subject. And and, and big picture, I think what Paul is saying is this, that that, that yes, men and women are equal. Neither are superior to the other. Uh, Yes, men and women, they are one in Christ. But at the same time, men and women are different. 
And those differences need to be expressed when we come together in the gathered church. So yes, men and women are equal. Uh, Neither is superior to the other. Yes, they are one in Christ, but at the same time, men and women are different, and those differences need to be expressed as we gather together as a church in worship. Now, Paul grounds what he says in three main truths. Uh, And what we're going to do is we're going to try and understand what Paul is saying, and then we'll look at some application at the end. So the first principle that Paul gives, verses 2 to 6, is rooted in God. It's a principle that is rooted in God himself. And the key verse is verse 3. Verse 3 is foundational for the whole passage. Um, Having given some comments of encouragement in verse 2, Paul then says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, one of the many difficulties in this passage is Paul's use of the word head, because clearly there is a very clever wordplay that is going on all through this passage. So the word that Paul uses for head can mean physical head. Um, It can mean headship in terms of um, authority. And it can also mean source or origin, like the head of a river. Now, it very clearly doesn't mean physical head in verse 3 although it will mean physical head elsewhere in the passage. And I'm fairly certain that it doesn't mean source or origin here in verse 3 either. So I I don't think that it's referring to Christ being the source of mankind's salvation in that it's through him that we are saved, nor man being the source of a woman in that Eve was taken from Adam, nor the father being the source of Christ in that it was the father who sent the son. No, the, the context tells us that it means headship and authority with, with honour or dishonour flowing upwards towards the head. Indeed, this is how Paul uses it elsewhere. You have one example in Ephesians 1 where Paul speaks of Christ as being head over, the, uh, over all things for the church with the context demanding that the head is authority. Uh, You have an even clearer example, very similar to this, in Ephesians 5, where wives are taught to submit to the uh, loving leadership of their husbands, with husbands being described there as head of the wife. So so in verse 3, Paul is saying that Christ is head over man. Uh, Christ is also head over women, but women are also under an earthly leadership, uh, the headship of their husbands. And this role of of, of husbands leading their wives, you you notice in verse 3 that it's rooted in God himself. So so end of verse 3, the head of Christ is God. So God the Son is equal with God the Father, Um, He's equal in divinity, he's equal in nature, he's equal in substance, and yet his equality is one that allows for a difference in roles. So so what did the father do? Well, the father sent the son. And, And what did Jesus do? Jesus willingly, gladly submitted to the father, and he came. And he came to do the father's will. 
Um, He came to complete the Father's plan of salvation. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus say to the Father? He said, not my will, but your will be done. And that was the pattern of the whole of Jesus' life. Submission to his Father. And in doing so, honor flowed upwards towards his head, the Father. Jesus keeps saying, I've glorified you on the earth. I've, I've done the work that you've given for me to do. In fact, this submission of Jesus um, to his head, to the Father, it's, it's something that never ends. So, for example, if you flick over to chapter 15 and verse uh, 28... Um, it's describing the, uh, the, 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 the time when, when all of um, God's enemies are put under Jesus' feet, including death. And, and then it describes Jesus giving the kingdom to the Father and Jesus himself being subject to the Father. So the submission of Jesus to the Father is something that never ends. It continues. So, so you see this principle of loving headship and willing submission, it's, it's rooted in God himself. It's, it's given by him. It's, it's patterned on him. And it's, it's not something that humanity has made up. It, it has its designs in God himself. And, and to reject it and to rebel against it is to bring dishonor and disgrace. So verse 4. In their culture, if a man vocally participates and contributes in a service whilst having his head covered, uh, everyone would see him as trying to reject who he was as a man, and it would bring dishonor on his head, Christ. And verse 5, in their culture, if a woman vocally participated in a, uh, a service with her head uncovered, Uh, Everyone would see her as rejecting her status and role as a wife, and she would bring disgrace upon her head, her husband. In fact, if she was to do that, Paul says, she might as well go the whole way, verses 5 and 6, and cut off her hair completely. Which, Which some suggest would be to be like a temple prostitute, or to be like an adulteress. So temple prostitutes wore their hair short and their society's punishment um, for adulteresses was to shave off all of her hair. And so Paul says, verse 6, she should cover her head. So so Paul's point is, is is that though the gospel has made us one in Christ and though men and women are of equal value, it It doesn't remove the God-given distinctions and roles that we have as men and women. That these roles and these distinctions, they're they're rooted in God himself. Principle number two, verses seven to 12. Here we have a principle rooted in creation. Uh, In verse seven, Paul explains further why a man shouldn't cover his head when the church gathers together, and a woman should. It's because he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, Paul is clearly referring back to the Garden of Eden and to creation and to the early chapters 
of Genesis. But, but in doing so, he's, he's not saying that women weren't made in the image of God, and he's not saying that they weren't made for the glory of God. No, no Paul's point is, is the order in which Adam, Adam and Eve were made. And he's highlighting how they were made. So, so Adam was made first for the glory of God, and, and God assigned him a role of headship. So you think out of some examples of the, those roles of headship. He, he named the animals. Um, um, he was held responsible for Eve taking the fruit. Uh, Eve was also made for the glory of God, but she was made from Adam and for Adam, verses 8 and 9. Uh, created to be Adam's helper, created to complete him. Uh, because Eve came from Adam, that doesn't mean that women are inferior to men. Uh, you see, Paul emphasizes that in verses 11 and 12. Yes, Eve came from Adam, but men are now born of women. So, so men and women, they're, they're not independent of each other, both are needed, and we see this so clearly in the church. So, for example, the church does not function well when it's dominated by men. The church does not function well when it's dominated by men, but, but neither does the church function well when it's dominated by women. Both are needed as they live out their God-given roles. And so Paul says, verse 10... That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now this is probably the most difficult verse in the passage. Uh, that's partly because the words a symbol of aren't actually there in the Greek, in the original wording. It, it, it should um, read more like that. Uh, that a woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. Now, now, now some think that's referring to a, a physical head covering, showing her submission to her husband, um, uh, when it's talking about authority on her head. Um, others suggest, however, perhaps more likely, that, that as she wears a head covering, showing her submission to her husband, that head covering gives her the right and the freedom to contribute in worship in ways which are appropriate for her. And then you have this very confusing reference to the angels. What's, what's that about? A woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. My guess is, is, that, is that because Paul is alluding back to the Garden of Eden and to creation and to, and to men and women in the context of the church beginning to function as they were created to, that the angels are now watching on in delight as God is glorified by men and women doing what they ought to do and fulfilling the roles that he originally gave them. The angels, they are watching on in delight when that happens. All the angels are grieved and offended when they see men and women in the gathered church going against the roles that God gave them and seeing an echo of what happened in the Garden of Eden when Eve took the lead over Adam. 
You remember angels, they are referred to in the Garden of Eden and in Genesis 3, and they're referred to in the context of judgment. And so we come to a third principle, verses 13 to 16. And this is rooted in nature. Uh, this is rooted in nature. And, and Paul's, point, Paul's big point here, it, it seems to be that this, that, that, that deep down we know that men and women are different. Uh, deep down we know that men and women are different and that the gospel doesn't remove those differences. So, so generally speaking, verses 14 and 15, women wear their hair longer than men, generally speaking. Uh, that's not always the case. So, for example, Jewish men in the Old Testament, when they took a Nazarite vow of devotion, they had to let their hair grow long. Hair length might be influenced by culture. Uh, of course, sometimes for, for medical reasons or for other reasons, someone might not be able to wear their hair in the way that they might like. But, but, but deep down, we, we usually know that there is a, a feminine way of growing and styling hair and deep down, we know that, generally speaking, there is a masculine way of growing and styling hair. And a woman's long hair is given to her, verse 15, by God as a covering. It's, it's, it's part of her glory. It's, it's her glory. It's, it's part of what celebrates her as a woman. And, and the gospel doesn't remove these differences and distinctions. Rather, the gospel, it, it restores us to seeing things as God originally intended them to be. And so we come to some application. And uh, I realize that one, what I'm gonna say is quite brief and you just can't say everything. And, and, and I'm very aware of that. And, and two, in that light, some of the application is deeply sensitive. And so if at some point afterwards you want to speak to someone about it, whether it's myself or James or Paul or Peter or one of the elders, or if you want to speak to a woman, I'm sure um, Liz Young or Janet Cordell or, or Hazel Watts would be happy to speak to you at some point. But just five things by way of application. And the first is cross-dressing. Cross-dressing. So, so I, I know that some male and female clothing is very similar, but there are some clothes that are, are, are clearly feminine, and there are some clothes that are clearly masculine. And, and if you are tempted to wear your hair, or to wear makeup, or, or to wear uh, or dress in such a way that makes you look like the opposite gender, we're, we're, we're so glad that you're here, but this passage reminds us of the importance of not trying to blur the distinctions. It reminds us of the importance of embracing who God has made you to be. Now I know that society doesn't say that it doesn't matter and, and that anything goes, but God says that it does matter and that it goes against his design for us. Uh, secondly, transgender. It may be that you genuinely struggle with who you feel you are, your gender identity. And, and again, I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm so sorry if, the, if you feel that you struggle in that way, if there is that genuine struggle 
in your heart. But again, this passage tells us that our gender identity comes from God himself. It's he who makes us who we are. It's, it's him who decides whether we are men or women or not. You, you see that at the end of verse 12, all things are from him. And in terms of gender identity, you will feel most free in embracing who God has physically made you to be. Thirdly, the role of a husband. And here's where I draw my many years of experience. <laughs> I, I love football. I, I, I love football. And every football team has a captain. And yet it's often not the best or the most skillful player. Um, if, if you are a husband, we can see from this passage that, that God has given to you a role of leadership and headship in the marriage. But that doesn't mean that you're the best player. Uh, it doesn't mean that you are superior to your wife. And it, and it definitely doesn't mean that you are allowed to be domineering or even abusive towards your wife. That is grossly wrong. Uh, in Ephesians 5, we are taught that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You are a team. You are a team together and your leadership is to be humble and sacrificial and loving. It is to be one which allows your wife to flourish and to grow in her likeness to Jesus. And this passage is saying that it would be highly inappropriate for you to vocally contribute in church worship, if you were abusing your role as a husband or rejecting who you are as a man. You say, well, well why? Well, well, because that will be inconsistent. Because on the one hand, you'll be given the impression of worship, while on the other hand, that worship would not be lived out in everyday life. And then we come fourthly to the role of a wife. The role of a wife. Uh, women are not under the headship of every man, only their husbands. Uh, a wife is equal to her husband. Uh, they are a team together. They are a partnership. And yet she has a different role in the team. And it's not the role of leadership. It's the role of willing submission as Jesus willingly submitted to the Father. Now, now, in that culture in the first century, uh, head covering was symbolic of being married. And, and everyone in society, they understood what the symbol represented. And our culture doesn't understand head coverings in the same way. It doesn't carry the same meaning. People wear wedding rings, but again, that's not quite the same. Often it's the woman who takes the husband's surname, but again, that's something slightly different. The big question is, is what about your heart? And what about your life? In your heart and life, do you embrace the role that God has given to you? Of, of willingly submitting to your husband's leadership? You, you see, if as a wife you, you reject that role and you don't allow him to lead you, what this passage is saying is, is that it will be highly inappropriate for you 
to vocally contribute in church worship as well. And you ask why? Because it's inconsistent. On the one hand, you'll be given the impression of worship. On the other hand, that worship would not be being lived out in your life. And so we come finally to church leadership. Church leadership. Uh, in, in the family, in the household of God, church leadership is, is very similar to the, uh, the, the loving, sacrificial leadership of a husband in a marriage. So according to God's design in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, it's male elders who shepherd the congregation. Uh, women are to be fully involved in the pastoral care of women. We see that in Titus 2. They are to vocally participate and contribute in worship where appropriate. We see that here in verse 5. Uh, but the Bible teaches that in, in the household of God, in, in the church context, they are not to teach or to exercise authority over men. We see that in 1 Timothy 2. And that's not because they are inferior, quite the opposite but because it's modeling what we see in God and creation and God's design for us. And I suspect that that's why here in verse five, women are able to vocally contribute in worship. But when you look at chapter 14 and verse 34, they are not able to vocally contribute in worship. Um, I, I suspect that the difference between chapter 11 and verse 5 and chapter 14 and verse 34 is that there is something going on there to do with authority. There is something going on there to do with authority. And so we need to pray. We need to pray. We need to pray for husbands. Do you pray for husbands? Uh, do you pray that they would fulfill the calling that God has given them? and that they would be a, a godly, Christ-like husband. Oh, we need to pray for wives. Do you pray for wives? Uh, we need to pray that wives would fulfill the calling that God has given to them, and that they would be like Christ, who submitted to the Father. Oh, we need to pray for those who are single, as they work out what this means for them. Oh, we need to pray for church leaders, that they would be godly shepherds of the sheep. And we need to pray for us as a church together that we would function together as we should and not just because the angels are watching but because the world is watching as well. And we pray that the world would see things happening as God always meant them to be. So let me pray and then we'll sing our final song. <coughs> Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for what we see in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, we thank you, Father, for how we see the equality. We thank you, Father, for how we see the different roles. And Father, we pray that you would help us, O oh Lord, to be conformed to your word and to live it out in our lives, that you might be seen and that you might be glorified. And Lord, that you might be praised. And, and Father, we pray for any who perhaps this morning feels that maybe uh, they, they have not done that as they should have done. And Lord, we thank you that in Christ there is forgiveness as we come to you for mercy. And Father, we pray for those who feel the, the need for strength to be able to fulfill these callings. 
And we pray, Father, that by your spirit that you would enable them to do so as they look to model themselves on Christ. And we pray this for his honour and for his glory. Amen.